our next topic in soteriology, which is the atonement. So if you kind of remember our outline, we're looking at, we're trying to look at salvation chronologically. Um, so we're talking about pre-salvific right now, what happened before an individual salvation that led up to it. So we've talked about things like God's forbearance um, and his election, uh, his uh, foreknowledge, his predestination, and then most recently we were looking at God's call, how it's issued through the gospel proclamation, and then when one receives that general invitation, then they become the called of God, and they have a calling and a hope of their calling and the privilege of calling upon God. So now what we want to look at is the atonement. Um, essentially, what is it, what is this work of Christ that somehow purchased salvation um, for those who believe? So the word atonement is an interesting one. It's not used very much in the New Testament, but it's used prolifically in the Old Testament. And that's the foundation that really gives rise to our understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. So the more we can come to understand the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, the better then we can understand Christ and his sacrifice. So I started out with just some vocabulary, um, just for the fun of it, to see some of those Hebrew and Greek words that give rise to the ideas that we are discussing. So the Hebrew word, the he, sorry, the Hebrew root is kapar, um, and so that's the verb, and then we have kaparet, and that's, the, that's a noun, um, the mercy seat. So if you remember in the wilderness tabernacle as well as in the temple, God's dwelling place, there was this mercy seat, which was the Ark of the Covenant, and it's the lid. On top of that, there's a couple of cherubim with their wings facing in, and that was the location of God's direct presence on earth. And that mercy seat, it's actually um, a noun from this root of atonement, and it essentially the idea is it's the place of atonement. It's the location of, a pl of atonement. Then um, another noun is kippurim. Um, you can hear the root. It's got a cough, a pe, and a resh, kind of like our English k, P and R. So kippurim, that's the noun that means atonement. But what does that sound like that we might be familiar with? Any thoughts? Kippur. You ever heard of Yom Kippur? Yeah. I was reading out the page. Nice. Because I didn't know what that was. Because the end of it is Purim. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's a different route. Yeah. But that one's a cool Jewish feast, too. That's the one out of Esther, right? Yeah, because they cast lots. No relation that I know of. But Yom Kippur is just Hebrew for Yom means day, and Kippur means atonement. So it's the day of atonement. And we'll go and look at that, but Leviticus chapter 16 gives us a bunch of Thoughts on that, Tim? So, does that, like, does it kippurim or kippurim? But, like, you know, the priest thing that they wear, the urine, is that part of the root, too? Urine and the mm, I think it's probably different root. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the root for kippurim is just the k, p, 
R sounds. Yeah. But then those are different roots. Sorry. Because oh. um, <laughs> Hebrew is based on the consonants, so the root mm -hmm. is the base consonant in word. Exactly. Yep. And typically roots are three letters. So this one has the... Hey, Gabe. You could come join us at this table, my friend. There's a seat by Kendra. I've never known Kendra to bite, so you should be safe. Did you pass one down? So that's the Hebrew vocabulary, the root. Um, and we'll go and we'll look at, it's used, the verb form is used about 102 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. So it's a pretty common root. Um, it appears a lot in the book of Leviticus. So it, it kind of got me excited. Some, you know, Leviticus is a hard book to study sometimes because it's just got a lot of <laughs> details. A lot of repetition. A lot of repetition. Ugh. It, it's it's, it's hard. We're reading Adeline's like, you keep saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it. Welcome to Leviticus. So, but Leviticus, it, it really is giving us a picture of atonement. So in Greek, um, there's an, a Greek root that is often used to translate these Hebrew roots. Um, it's hel heloskamai is the verb, which is a verb that means to make atonement. Helasterion is the noun form, uh, meaning mercy seat. And then helasmos is the sacrifice of atonement. So we'll go and look. We won't be exhaustive in this. We could, we could honestly spend months talking about the atonement and doing word studies and trying to understand all of it. But this is called Foundations in Christian Doctrine, so we'll try to keep it introductory. But I think it's a really, really profound topic. So as far as definition, the English word, it actually still carries in it its etymology, its background, where it came from. At one meant. It, I like compound words that are like that, where it's just plain and simple. It's the act of reconciling two previously hostile parties. So theologically, atonement deals with man's greatest problem of estrangement from God due to sin. So we'll talk through that, but that's the English word. It's talking about reconciliation, helping two hostile parties or enemies be at one. And so, but then in Hebrew, it's often translated with our English to atone, to make atonement. But the, the very basic idea of the root is to cover or to appease. Those are kind of the two ways that it can be used, is to cover or to appease. Another word, to expiate. And another word that I didn't write down is to propitiate. Well, it's not in the definition from, that's from the Lexham Theological Word Book, um, a good resource on it. But um, in atonement studies, there's kind of a debate. Is the atonement, speaking now of Christ's atonement, um, which is based on the Old Testament sacrifices, is it primarily an expiation or a propitiation? And what are those two words? So expiation means to remove guilt and to remove the sin that caused the guilt. Whereas propitiation, so that's the act, 
That's from man's perspective, removal of guilt and sin. Propitiation is a Godward act to appease or to satisfy the wrath of God toward our sin. Does that make sense? Big words. So expiation, removal of sin, propitiation, satisfaction of wrath. So, but that's like, we see it. Like, we see God either removes the sin or when we sin, there's like, when it's removed, there's a satisfactory thing that he's happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and that it's, um, that justice is appeased. Justice has like Yeah. Happened. How exactly? God's wrath is only satisfied through justice having been appeased. So justice has to be taken care of for God's wrath to be placated. So that's the propitiation. It's, uh, sorry, to be, to be removed. Okay. Placated to be, yeah. To be appeased. We're kind of become circular. Synonyms. But, so propitiation is often just a simple definition of it is a wrath-removing sacrifice that God bore, that Jesus bore God's wrath so that we don't have to. But those two concepts, expiation and propitiation, are linked. You can't have one without the other. So maybe it's a futile debate that people debate about, but it's, uh, they are linked. So let's look at two texts that kind of help us just understand the basic meaning of the root, but they're unrelated to what we typically describe as atonement. So go to Genesis 6. Our context here, we're in the the ark passage, the flood passage, and this is before the flood. Um, God sees the hearts of man that their thoughts are only evil continually. There were the Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward. And, but Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is going to destroy man from off the earth through the flood, but Noah finds grace. And so God begins to give instructions. Genesis six thirteen, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms you shall make in the ark and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. That verb pitch it or to cover it with pitch, that's actually our root, um, kafar, to cover it. So the picture we get, that's the basic meaning of the root is to cover. Um, Just like you can picture Noah's out there with his paintbrush and a little can of pitch and he's covering this ark with pitch that's the picture that's the word picture we get in our mind to cover and so is pitch like a paint uh like tar okay yeah but then genesis 32 gives us another gives us another picture of the same word used in a relational context genesis 32:20 and remember the context here um, when Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac and Rebekah God had promised that Esau who was the elder brother would serve Jacob who is the younger brother so Jacob's going to be the new, the new patriarch he's the leader not Esau 
And so as they grow up, there's conflict. Jacob steals his birthright with the with the um, stew. With the stew. Mm. Thank you. And so Esau's not super happy with his brother. And then Isaac calls Esau in and he says, Esau, go, you know, make me some wild game stew. So Esau goes out to kill the game. But Rebecca plots with Jacob to make some stew from a um, from part of their flock, and so they do it, and Jacob goes in and steals the blessing from Esau. And now, then Esau comes back, and there's no blessing left for him. Remember that? And then, Rebecca says, oh boy, Esau's going to murder you, Jacob, because he's so angry. So what does she do? Sends him back to her people to find a wife. <laughs> well, essentially. She says, go hang out with my, um, with my brother Laban, and... Um, wait until I send word for you to come back and be safe. Well, he's been away now um, a long time, over over 14 years. And she, he's never gotten word from his mom, Rebecca. It's like, oh boy, Esau must have been really mad. But now Jacob is on his return journey, and he's afraid. He thinks Esau's still going to be mad at him. Um, Esau sends out his troops, and they're heading toward Jacob and his enormous family now. And Esau's afraid. So uh, verse 16, Genesis 32, 16, he delivered them into, well, he sends out a bunch of, a bunch of his animals. 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams. A um, bunch of camels, colts, cattle, bulls, donkeys. So he puts these all in the hands of his servants. Verse 16, every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, pass over before me, put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, Whose are you, and where are you going, and whose are these before you? Then you shall say, They are, the, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent unto my lord Esau, and behold, also he's behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. Here comes our word in verse 20. And say ye, moreover, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease that's our word. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Peradventure, he will accept of me. So the picture we get is Jacob still thinks that Esau's mad at him. So how is he going to find favor with Esau? How is he going to make sure that Esau doesn't just kill him and all of his family? Well, he sends this enormous gift ahead of him, and he says it's to appease him. It's to help make him less angry with me. That's our root. Kafar, to a piece. So those are our, our two basic meanings of the word. It's to make a covering. And you can kind of see the idea of a covering in there, even in the concept of a piece. It's, okay, I want Esau to see this large gift that I'm sending, and that's supposed to make a covering for the wrong that I did him a long time ago. Does that make sense, kind of the basic meaning of the roots? Okay, so let's think about the Old Testament storyline just a little bit. Let's go, oh, let's start off in, well, let's tell the story in Genesis. Okay, so Genesis 2, God has just made all of earth, and now Genesis 2 zooms in and talks specifically about his creation of mankind. And he gives Adam some instructions. Hey, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, because you'll die. But then... 
God is in close fellowship, in close proximity with Adam and then with Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, we see God comes and they hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So the picture we start all of history with is God wants to dwell among his people. If you fast forward then, um, let's go to Exodus 25. Because as you think through it, God wants to dwell God wants to dwell among his people, but then Adam and Eve mess it up. They sin and they get banished from the garden. So now God is working to restore his dwelling among his people. So once you fast forward to Exodus, Exodus 25, um, the Lord tells Moses, he's saying that the children of Israel should bring offerings or uh, donations, contributions, in order, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and after the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So God, he, uh, he wants to dwell among his people, and so that's the purpose of the wilderness tabernacle, is so God can once again dwell with man. Now, there's no temple on earth, so what it, where is God's dwelling place on earth now, in this stage of redemptive history? Where does God live now on earth? In us. That's 2 Corinthians 6.16. Um, he says, Paul says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he quotes this Old Testament idea that God wants to dwell among his people and that he'll be their God and will be his people. But now he applies it to us as believers that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Well, then Revelation 21, we should go and read this because it's really cool. Revelation 21. Just to bring it full circle, and then we'll talk about the means by which God dwells among his people. Who wants to uh, read Revelation 21, verses 1 through, 1 through 4? I can. Thanks, Kendra. Oh, I don't have a voice, but I'll read it anyway. Okay. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride adorned for her, uh, where was I at? Sorry. Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. <clears throat> so we get this beautiful picture in redemptive history how God started in the Garden of Eden. He dwelt among man with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's God's goal. That's why he made us in his image is so that we could enjoy his presence. 
And so then we mess it up through sin, but then God continues to pursue us and to attempt to dwell among us. And he will one day bring it to completion in this new heavens and new earth when God, his presence physically once again dwells among man. And it brings perfect peace and harmony. Tears are wiped away and there's no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. I mean, that's beautiful. I can't wait. But here's the thing about God's presence dwelling among man. We can go over to Exodus now. We're going to be in Exodus for a little bit. But as you're heading there, remember the, remember the storyline. Israel has been in Egypt for a little over 400 years, and now the Pharaoh is oppressing them. And so God delivers his people out of Egypt through his servant Moses with these 10 plagues. They cross the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are destroyed. It's like, wow, God is really mighty. And then we get to Exodus 19, and they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai, which is God promised that to Moses when he was on the backside of this mountain, that this will be the sign that I have sent you, is you'll come and you'll worship God again at this mountain. So God's fulfilling his promise there. But God, he, he gives Moses some instructions. He says, I'm going to descend on the mountain, and I'm going to dwell there. That's going to be where my presence is for a little bit. But he gives them some instructions. Um, verse 3, Exodus 19, 3. Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. So Moses calls everybody together. He tells them this. Now verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, sanctify them. Okay, that's an interesting word, sanctify. That's the verb form of holiness. Set them apart. They need to be cleansed. Sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. So God gives some specific instructions. I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai, but beware, it's dangerous. <laughs> Wash your clothes, be set apart. Um, they were to abstain from intimacy with their spouse, and they were by all means not to come up to the mountain or to touch it. So, verse 16, it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Verse 18, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So God descends on Mount Sinai, and it's good God's presence is bringing blessing to Israel. And yet God's good presence is also dangerous. And it's because of his holiness. God and his perfection. It's an illustration that helps us understand holiness is the sun. The sun is good. If we didn't have the sun, plants wouldn't grow. We wouldn't get vitamin D. It would be dark all the time. It would be cold. But the sun's also dangerous. 
and the closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous it is. If we go outside in, a, in the hot summer, we like to put on some long sleeves or put on some sunscreen sometimes to protect us because it'll, it'll burn us. It'll give us skin cancer. It's dangerous. But what if we were going to try to take a voyage to the sun? The proximity brings more danger because the sun, it's good, but it's also dangerous. Similarly, God's holiness, because he is so perfect, so pure, and it's pictured with fire, it's good, but it's also dangerous for us as not holy people to approach God's presence, lest we be consumed. So that's the problem that we have. God wants to dwell among his people, but God is holy and God's people are not. Because of our sin, there's a rift. There's an estrangement between us and God. And so atonement is God's solution. So um, throughout the history up till Exodus, there have been several sacrifices that we see. Genesis 3, what does God clothe Adam and Eve with before he drives them out of the garden? Remember, they put on fig leaves, but what does God put on them? Yeah, ram skins, animal skins, implying there was some blood that had to be shed. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel come to present their offerings before God. Cain presents an offering of his crops. Abel presents an offering, a lamb from his flock. And God accepts Abel's offering um, because of the blood. And you can go and you can think through that, but he rejects Cain's offering. Genesis 8, Noah gets off the, off the ark after the flood and he offers burnt offerings to God. The patriarchs, they built altars all the time. Genesis 13, 26, 33, 35. They're making sacrifices to God. And you think about Job in Job 1. Job, he made an offering after his kids, they were having their party, and he says, just in case they sinned against God in their hearts, I'm going to make an offering to God. There's something about our sin that demands a blood offering. Um... So we're we often quote, um, but Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness, no release of those sins. But then let's go over Leviticus 17, talks a little bit more about that. Leviticus 17.11. And as you go there, the last one where we see these blood sacrifices come up before we get to Exodus 19 and this inauguration of God's covenant with his people was Exodus 12, the Passover, the tenth and final plague, when God is, he says, the firstborn in every house is going to die. The only way to escape is sacrifice a lamb and put their blood on the doorway, and that will protect you from this plague of death. But then Leviticus 17, 11, um, well, uh, verse 10. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eats any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So we have God is saying, don't eat the blood. Well, why? Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. That's why God doesn't want them to eat the blood, because 
The blood is actually God's gift to mankind to deal with our sin. He says, I've given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Which is an interesting picture if you contrast it with um, the other nations at the time. They used sacrifices too, but their sacrifices weren't a gift from their gods. Instead, it was them trying to bring something to their gods in order to earn his favor. To, um, it was their gifts to God. Whereas the sacrifice that God institutes is actually God's gift to man so that we can enjoy his presence. Does that make sense, that distinction there? Well, but weren't the people the ones giving their sacrifices to God? Mm -hmm. God is saying you're giving them to me because I have, because it means something? Yeah. Sorry? I was thinking, kind of connecting it with the foreknowledge and predestined kind of thing. God wrote the whole plan. And so as he, even as he was developing the idea of blood that's going through us and through the animals, he kind of had this picture all there. But mm-hmm. he gave blood itself to everybody because that was part of his plan, kind of. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what I'm thinking. As the author Amen. of the whole thing, that's exactly what he did. Because I know when I'm writing a story, you stick in little pieces that tie strings together through the story, and he's a better writer than I am. So, so, you know, as he was writing this whole plan of salvation throughout the times, he developed blood mm-hmm. as what he was going to use for atonement. So even Christ's blood, the lamb's blood, the whole thing. So, so yeah, giving it to us through the helping. You know, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> but that's what popped into my head, tying them together. That's good. So... The picture we get, God wants to dwell in his people, dwell among his people. His presence is good, but it's dangerous for us because we're not holy like he is, not like we ought to be. And so if we approach God in our sin, in our state of um, not holy, unholy, often called common, as you work through the Torah, the, the law of God, if we approach him in our uncleanness and our commonness, our sinfulness, it's dangerous for us. We'll be consumed. But God wants us. He dwells among us so that we can draw near. And the book of Exodus closes. The glory of the Lord fills this brand new tabernacle, and God's dwelling among his people, and the goal is that they can then draw near to God. But if you just look back at the book of Exodus, um, the last chapter, Exodus 40, page Exodus 40, look at verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's like, wow, praise the Lord. God dwells here now. We're a special nation. But there's a problem. Verse 35. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was just up on the mountain in God's direct presence. But there's a problem. It's sin. And so the book of Leviticus is God's solution to this problem that he dwells among his people, but we can't draw near. Israel couldn't draw near. So now just turn the page, Leviticus 1. Leviticus 1, verse 1. The Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. 
If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that's by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And so then this, um, this bull is going to be burned in a certain way as a sweet-smelling savor to God by fire. Verse 9. So God says, if you want me to dwell among you and you want to be able to enjoy my presence, there, are, there is a need for sacrifice. So I just, this is really cool. Verse 2, if any man of you bring an offering to the Lord, it's to bring an offering is actually two words, two, it's the same root. So it's, if you want to, it's, he's saying, if you draw near with an offering, and the word offering is from the same root, and it means something with which you draw near. So the picture is, if you want to draw near to God's presence, you draw near with a drawing near object, an offering. Does that make sense? It's just a beautiful picture of how God now dwells among us, and he wants his people to draw near and to enjoy his presence, but we have to come with something with which to draw near, a sacrifice, to make atonement for our sins. So I listed it out there. There were five offerings for the Israelites. This is the burnt offering, what we were just reading. That's an atonement offering. Then we have um, the sin offering is Leviticus 4, and the trespass offering, Leviticus 5. Both of those are dealing with sin. But then we also have the grain and the peace offering. So these are something with which we draw near to God, but it didn't involve blood being shed. So maybe someday we'll do a study of Leviticus. Maybe that's what our next study should be. Who knows? <laughs> Could be fun. He's over here like, let's start now. <laughs> well, it's, like, it's one of those cool things. Like, the more you read, like... Um, Leviticus and Exodus is just like man, like the what they had to do before mm-hmm. to keep in good in God's good grace, and like the sacrifice, the constant like Aaron and his sons were killing units. It's all I can say. Like those yeah. guys worked. That's all they did yeah. was like butcher and like they were just. That's all they did was work. I'm like I know I know how much work that is. I'm like mm-hmm. oh my gosh, like these guys were in it, and just the the effort that had to be maintained at all times. And then just like looking at the beauty of the cross, right? And, and complete like the other side of that, like what we currently can enjoy. So it's like that one decision to follow Christ and to live for him. It's like, that's that one atonement. So it's just like, holy cow, like go from, you'd spend your entire life just working and it's all works, right? At that point, because you're trying to maintain and offset your, your bad, like the, the misdeeds, right? To that simplicity of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's what's super cool to me. So that's what's that's why I get out of reading like mm-hmm. Leviticus. I'm like, man, it's so much. It's so detailed. It's so easy to mess up. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's what's hard. Like why I'm confused because you're saying that they didn't. They weren't working for God's salvation. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like they are working for God's salvation. <laughs> yeah. But that's the picture of what atonement is. So the two ideas of it is. First of all, the atonement, the sacrifice, is a ransom. So it's a payment made to God on that behalf. But the person can't pay it. 
because they're not clean. They're blemished. But you notice that bull had to be without blemish. So the bull comes, and they lay their hands on it, and that's the idea of they're appointing it as their substitute. Now this bull who is without blemish can go before God so that I can go free. That, okay, because then, then that's when, okay, so the Old Testament, then Jesus, you know, was sacrificed, and he had to be without mm-hmm. blemish and made mm-hmm. perfect. And then he was sacrificed not just for one person, but, but for, for everyone. Exactly. So it really is, that's why we read Leviticus 17.11, because the picture we get of the Old Testament law is very much works-oriented. They had to do a lot. But it was still God's ordained grace through which they weren't working for grace. God had already given it. They just had to appropriate it through faith, saying, I mean, think about how absurd it seems. Why does God say, well, just slit a bull's throat and bring that to me and you can go free. Like, why is that? Why is that the means of atonement? It seems absurd from our human perspective. And so think of it from Israel's perspective. That seems a little absurd. Why do I have to do that? Why can't I, as Cain, why can't I just bring the best of what I do have, my crops? Why do I have to buy one of Abel's sheep to bring to you? So it still was by faith but it's by faith that God will forgive and cover my sins through this atoning sacrifice. Does that make sense? Yeah, because they knew that was the promise. When you bring your animal to be sacrificed, you're doing it not because you want to go sacrifice your animal, but because you believe that God is real and you want to mm-hmm. give that to him. Exactly. Instead of giving it to him because you want saved, you're already at that point mm-hmm. believing, and now you've given Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then Leviticus 16 has just a ton to say about atonement. Um, The Day of Atonement, it was one day a year, and essentially the picture is if God's going to dwell among his people, there need to be daily and repeated sacrifices to maintain my ritual purity so that I can come before God and enjoy his presence without danger to me. But one day a year, they had to offer an additional sacrifice So first, the high priest would offer one for him, lest he going before God on behalf of the people would be consumed. But then what he's going to do, there's a a scapegoat and another one that he's going to bring. The scapegoat, he lays his both hands on this thing, and he confesses the sins of the people on it, and then sends it off into the wilderness. And that's a picture of expiation. The sins are sent away. So now your sins can be forgiven because the goat carried them off. But then the picture of propitiation is, now we sacrifice this lamb without blemish, not a lamb there, but we sacrifice this one without blemish as a, as a substitute, as a ransom. And so then he goes and he sprinkles that blood on the instruments inside of this wilderness tabernacle. And what it does is, the picture is, God's dwelling in his people. He's holy, but they are not. And so their sin is creeping in. And it's, um, it's defiling God's dwelling place. So once a year, God has to deal with sin through this day of atonement. And it resets the clock, and now they have another year before they have to do it. Which gives us then the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. So let's go over to Hebrews. Um, we'll just go... Let's go to Hebrews 9 for now, because it builds on that Day of Atonement imagery. 
Hebrews 9, verse 11, but Christ, but Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into, he entered in once into the holy place. That was what the high priest had to do at this day of atonement. Go before the holy of holies with this blood of a bull or a goat. But Jesus does it by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the picture we get is, they, and Hebrews 10 talks about this. I'll let you can go and read it. But they had to keep repeatedly offering these sacrifices to God because they kept on sinning. But Jesus, he offered himself once. And through his own blood, he purchased eternal redemption for us. So the picture is God wants to dwell in us, but for him to do so, we have to be a holy temple for God, because otherwise it's dangerous to us. And so Christ offered his own blood as our ransom and as our cleansing agent to cleanse us so that then God can indwell us through his spirit. And that's the atonement, that Jesus paid the price. He was our substitute. His blood was shed on our behalf. And he brings purification so that God can dwell among us. And as James 4 then picks up on the imagery, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then, and we're sinners, but the Holy Spirit, like, helps us, why do we have such horrible things happen still to people who believe when the Holy Spirit is inside of us, but we still have like a hard time dealing with a lot of things in the world. Mm-hmm. Are you asking, so Holy Spirit indwells us, are you asking why do bad things happen like tragedies around no, like, us, or why do we still struggle with sin? I, th- I guess like if the Holy Spirit's in us and the Holy Spirit's perfect inside of us and say we're having like a bad day, but we want to have a better day, and you know like, Sometimes I go feel the Holy Spirit. I'm like, okay, I definitely know that this is not me, okay? But mm-hmm. then other days I'm like, okay, Holy Spirit, like, <laughs> I'm ready. I need help. Like, I, and it's like a week or like two weeks of just darkness. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, why does that happen? And I know like sometimes it could be like, oh, we're not picking up our crosses daily. We're not praying. But if the Holy Spirit's always in us mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit would be helping us, then why do we go through such long periods of darkness? Yeah. That's a good question, Sari. I love prayers, but the time the teacher is quiet is during the attack. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's well, like, too. Yeah, yeah, because God's going to kind of be quiet and see what you're going to do with it. Well, yeah. and I was reading to the Bible because I, you know, I've always had that question, but it was like um, something about through these trials you will come out stronger. Mm-hmm. 
But I was just curious, like, what do you write? Like, if there's something I missed. <laughs> because I'm like, well, you can feel really dark sometimes. You're yeah. like, okay, Holy Spirit, like, I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> I need help, I know I want to do this on my own kind of thing, so. Yeah. I was just wondering. And I think that's part of, like, if you go and read Romans 8, that's a lot of what Paul's talking about, is the Spirit's in you, and yet you still struggle. And that's what I read last night. Yeah? <laughs> Amen. And I love the, the line in there where he talks about how the Spirit, we don't know what to pray for. Like, in those dark times, sometimes we're like, just, Lord, help. I don't even know what to say. But the Spirit, he intercedes for us with groanings that can't even be uttered. Like, he's going before the Father for us, and he's praying for us because we don't even know what to say. Okay. So in those times of darkness, maybe we feel like he's not doing anything, but he's actually before God for us, interceding on our behalf. Okay. Okay. And I think it always falls back to like the considerate pure joy my brothers when, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith um, develops perseverance. And it's like one of those things like you know, like you go through those dark times knowing that the Holy Spirit's there, and you never like you're not turning your back on that. And I think like when you come out on the backside of that. It's like God sees that. It's like, yeah, you went through that junk and your faith was actually strengthened because of it. Like you, you almost, I don't know, it's like a, that, that's just kind of how, like, as we've gone through some tough stuff, it's just like, man, that's kind of the way I have to look at it. It's like, God, you, you know the plan. I don't. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you can, it can be, yeah, it can be easy street, which sometimes I think is just great, right? Like you feel, you feel God's presence. You feel like that, like that leading in your life. But then, like you say, there's times where it's just like, where are you at? Like, yeah, hey. Like, I know. I've literally like, done that. Like, yeah, no, for sure. Like, yeah, no, I definitely understand that. It's just kind of like, but I think that's it's through that testing. Like, seriously, it's like, yeah, the teacher is quiet during the test. But it's also to allow you to grow through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Yeah. And it's like God's upside down kingdom because everything seems like backwards. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, it's for you, for yeah. the good to help strengthen you in God's glory and stuff. So, I was just wondering, well, maybe I missed something. And I didn't mean to sound tragic. No. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, no. but I mean, I've been going through some tough times emotionally. Do not cry. I kind of stretch you guys up. So, you know, but, you know, it feels like he's quiet. He, I think he's trying to remind us of things and remembering by looking back, like what I was saying earlier, where, okay, Commandant Secor called me, and then there's a lot of silence where I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and then 